The following sermon was preached at Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Um, we're going to spend a good proportion of reading from Matthew's text. So I'm going to do two things. Caleb's asked me to come and to speak on the text that I wrote my dissertation on, but he's also asked me to include some of the technical details of drilling into the text. So this is going to be a, like a sermon lecture, kind of pulling these two together. We're going to get into the text, and then at the end there will be a time for question and answer. Um, I'm hopeful that it will be profitable for all of us. Uh, we're going to begin reading in Matthew 27, verse 32. Our brother Matthew writes to us, under the inspiration of the Spirit, with the same authorities of Jesus Christ himself, we're here speaking to us this evening. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross." So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly... This was the Son of God. There were also many women looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. 
And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, While he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers, go. Make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold... I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would help us this evening as we study your word. We thank you for the privilege that we have had today for so many of us to begin the day studying the word of God with the people of God and to now end the day studying the word of God with the people of God. We pray that we would never take that for granted. We know that there are many who would love to have this privilege. We pray that tonight we would steward this time well, me and speaking, my friends here before me and they're listening, that we might understand the scripture better, that we might be able to more faithfully communicate what it means for us to be Christians. And we ask, Father, that you would help us, even now as we're studying this text, that we might focus. And we ask all of this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Rosaria Butterfield knew how to read. And she knew how to read well. She knew how to read critically. This former lesbian who is now a converted Christian and a pastor's wife in North Carolina recounts her disdain for many Christians that she encountered at Syracuse University for their refusal to read widely. It seemed to her that they almost 
disdained the opportunity to be able to read and they closed their minds forever to ideas that might challenge the authority and the accuracy of the Bible. And yet, using the literary devices that she employed on a daily basis as a scholar of literature, she began to read the scripture with Ken Smith, a pastor who she met with to answer questions about the Bible. For Rosaria, it began a sheer mockery. She would read a text, and then she would proceed to denounce the text and its accuracy and its veracity. But Ken would patiently and lovingly correct her and gently employ nuance to her reading of the text. And as they read, Rosaria said that she was okay with a metaphorical God who bore a metaphorical cross and died a metaphorical death and rose from the dead in a metaphorical way. But when she read the passage before us this evening and the historical accuracy of the events that took place immediately following Jesus' crucifixion, she found that they could not be refuted. In the end, even atheistic scholars of literature have their limits. And when they encounter the account of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ on a Roman cross, the details that are provided the reader are astounding. Now, for anybody familiar with their Bible at all, they'll know that crucifixions were common in this era and only enemies of the state were handed over to be crucified. The cross was one of the most feared methods of execution known in the Roman world. It was not sensationalistic or especially filled with drama. It was torturous, it was brutal, and it was an agonizing death. Bruised, bloodied, and sunburned, It was not uncommon for victims to hang on crosses for days as the elements would beat down on them. The pain of simply breathing ultimately became too much for them because they would have to push against their feet and pull up with their hands so that they could gasp for breath. Otherwise, they would suffocate. The physical agony of the cross still gives readers of the gospel in the Bible reason to ask a very important question. Why was a carpenter's son from Nazareth who emerged from Galilee such a threat to the state of Rome and the Jewish nation that they would execute him at midday? If Rome would have executed every person who spoke an ill word against the Roman state, there would have been very few Jews left at the time. It was not uncommon for people to rise up as self-designated prophets among the Jewish people. So why was Jesus singled out? Why was Jesus crucified? The place, Matthew tells us, was Golgotha. It It is referred to in Matthew's Gospel, verse 33, as place of a skull. It was outside of the city, away from the main thoroughfares, but accessible to every passerby. It was a place of humiliation. A humiliation that was foretold in the scripture. Psalm 69 verse 20. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Psalm 22 speaks of Christ's humiliating crucifixion and gives insight to his mental state during his sufferings at Golgotha. Psalm 22, verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who seek me, mock me. 
They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Friends, the location, Golgotha, and the means, crucifixion, were designed to psychologically manipulate the victims that were being executed on the cross. The scenery was intended to incite fear and terror as they're being led to the cross. As the victim would hear the words, Ibis ad crucium, that is, go to the cross. The scripture tells us, as Jesus was actually raised up on the cross, the Roman soldiers did what Roman soldiers usually do to the enemies of the state. They would attempt to medicate the victim in ways that would deaden the pain. So verse 34 tells us, they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall. But Jesus' response speaks of not only his character, but his stamina at this time. The drug that would, in effect, cause his mind to be deadened to the harsh reality that he was experiencing moment by moment was refused. The Bible says, verse 34, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. Jesus did not circumvent the cross when he had the opportunity. And Jesus took nothing to soothe the pain that he experienced physically, mentally, and emotionally, and above all, spiritually, because nothing would dilute the very presence of darkness in this moment anyway. Again, we see the normal practice of soldiers as they, verse 35, divided his garments. Now, by this action, the Roman soldiers are unwittingly fulfilling the psalmist's prophecy. Psalm 22, verse 18, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And so, verse 36, the soldiers, they sat and they watched. They had a front row seat to the death of the Galilean, Jesus of Nazareth, the wonder worker of God, the famous teacher, the famous orator, had finally met his end in Matthew's gospel. But not before they executed an order from Pilate to place a charge above Jesus' head, a public notice that would serve as a deterrent to every other would-be king. Verse 37, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Now, if you're a careful reader of the Bible, especially when you get to the Gospels, though there are many differences between all of the Gospels at times, one of the things that we'll see is that when they get to the last week of Jesus' life, they are very much in sync. So when you go to John chapter 19, verse 20, John notes that this inscription was written in Aramaic, the common language of the people, Latin, the official language of Rome, and Greek, the international language of the empire. They wanted to ensure the widest possible readership among the throngs of pilgrims who would be flocking to Jerusalem for Passover. Every passerby was to be warned, you don't want to be like this man. You don't want to end up like this man. If you behave like this man, you will meet the same end as this man. In John's gospel, the chief priests approach Pilate and they request that he make a change to the charge. This man said, I am king of the Jews, because it was unacceptable for the state to comment on matters of religious priority. But Pilate refused their request. And the irony is that Pilate was executing Jesus for actually being the king of the Jews. The charge that was the basis for his condemnation and for his execution by the Romans, 
quickly became the confession of truth for the early Christians and for believers throughout the centuries. Jesus was not just a king, Jesus was the king. But they wanted Christ to be king on their own terms. So Matthew tells us of their scornful jeering. Look at verse 42. He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. At the very moment that Jesus was willingly saving others at the expense of his own life, they mock, they blaspheme, they slander as he is bringing salvation to the world. The scripture tells us that he found no pity even in this moment. Even the crucified beside him rail him. Look at verse 44. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now we have to pay attention and recognize that from a Roman perspective, crucifixion was the most humiliating form of death. And from a Jewish perspective... Crucifixion was the most humiliating form of death. And it seems here that now the secular government and the corrupt religious authorities had Jesus in their trap, after all, immobilized, in pain, helpless, mocked, left for dead. The once powerful teacher of God is reduced to nothing before the power of this Sanhedrin and the will of the Roman state. By dying on the cross... The scripture tells us that Jesus fell under the curse of God. Friends, you cannot conceive of a greater humiliation than the one experienced by Jesus. God cursed his own beloved son. If you are a Christian here this evening, it should be profoundly humbling to you that for a time being, God loved you more than he loved his son as he became a curse for you. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. But something happened. The Bible says, verse 45, it was the sixth hour. That is noon. It's high noon in Jerusalem. Darkness fell over all of the land until the ninth hour. That's about 3 p.m. Jesus hung on the cross for about six hours in the brightest and hottest part of the day. But Matthew tells us there was darkness. Now, that is enough to spook even the most ardent skeptic. Something is going on. The weather patterns seem to respond to the crucifixion of the man from Galilee. The entire cosmos was attentive to what was happening at this moment. The earth that Jesus created was mourning in darkness at his death. And then at the ninth hour, Jesus said, as he pulled himself up to breathe, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. A direct quote translated from Psalm 22. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? If we're careful readers of the Bible, we will begin to say, no wonder there is darkness. After scourging and mocking and slander and blaspheming, now there is abandonment. The darkness of the land 
echoed the darkness of the heart of Jesus himself as he expressed the agony of his own soul, the terror of being forsaken. This is the only time that Jesus speaks and he is not answered. A divine lament in the midst of a divine judgment, Jesus was bearing God's judgment for the sin of God's people. And he was left alone to die by himself. Friends, we can never understand the depth of this moment. The Son of God was being forsaken by God, even as he was himself God. Friends, we must not miss this or move too quickly past this. We must linger over the fact that Jesus prayed more earnestly in the midst of agony. How intense the first request for removal must have been, we cannot fathom in this life. How earnest the third request must have been, we may never understand even in eternity. It was said of Martin Luther that he once sent down to preach a sermon from this same text. He sat at his desk, chewing on the meaning of these words for quite some time, and every once in a while, someone would poke their head into his study to see if he was okay, because he had been sitting there for hours and he had not moved or budged an inch. Finally, they say that Luther threw up his hands into the air and exclaimed, God forsaken by God, who can understand it? And went about some other business. Friends, if we do not feel the offense of the cross, we have failed to understand the force of it. But if we only feel the offense of the cross, we have failed to understand the goodness of it. It was at this moment that the deity himself was treated as a sinner. The righteous fury of a righteous God is poured out on the righteous Son of God for evils that he himself had not done. And in some mysterious way, beyond all human comprehension and understanding, the Son of God, the Scripture tells us, is cut off He is separated from God because he is bearing the wrath of sinful humanity and enduring the wrath of God as a substitute for God's people in the place of sinful humanity. He was crucified for your sins. Jesus' cry from the cross does not indicate that he is bewildered or confused or unsure of what's taking place or disoriented or disappointed. It expresses the terrifying cost of his sacrifice. Jesus was counted as a criminal, as a rebel, as an insurrectionist, as a sinner, as one worthy being forsaken by God. Those watching did not understand what Jesus was saying. Some of the bystanders thought he was calling Elijah. They actually thought that he was praying for the prophet to deliver him. And the moment startled even the most hardened person who heard his death cry from the cross. So Matthew says, verse 48, And not one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. Now, despite the horror of the moment, Jesus' faith in God remains strong. Luke tells us Jesus prays, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Luke 23, verse 46. Knowing that the end was near, John tells us Jesus uttered a phrase. It is finished. The work that he had come to do 
had been fully and finally accomplished, and there no longer remained any penalty to pay for sins. Jesus lived his life with a very clear purpose, shedding everything that got in the way of this particular moment. Jesus would not be deterred. He would not be distracted. He would not be uh, discouraged in his task. He moved with clear, conscious effort toward the cross. And Matthew tells us that even in his death, Jesus retains control. Look at verse 15. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. The deed was done. The price for sins had been paid. And as he told his disciples earlier, he used his own authority to lay down his own life. But something happened. Matthew tells us something occurred as a result of Jesus' death. Look at verse 51. And behold... The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to uh, to many. Matthew tells us that five signs occurred As a result of Jesus' death. Five signs accompany Jesus' death. The curtain of the temple is torn. The earth shakes. The rocks split. The tombs are opened. And lifeless people are raised. Whom Matthew calls saints. These extraordinary signs accompanying Jesus' death. Portray Jesus as the Son of God. So the question for us as careful readers is... Why? Why is Matthew so concerned to make sure that he presents Jesus as the Son of God on the cross? Because Matthew desires to accentuate Jesus' identity. He is the Son of God. The child born of the Virgin Mary dies as the Son of God. In the death-resurrection scene... The child who has become a man is the Christ of God lifted up on a Roman cross. The dignity of the title, Son of God, would not have been conferred on him would he, had he not been the Son of God. The signs accompanying Jesus' death accentuate that Jesus' death is a life-giving death. The dead rise at the cross of Christ to make his divine identity apparent. This really was the Son of God. The mocking of the Pharisaic naysayers and the robbers is invalidated when Jesus' divine sonship is established by these signs that are accompanying his death. We should see, nobody dies like this. When people are born, things don't happen like they did when Jesus was born. When people die, things don't happen like they did when Jesus died. The resurrection of these saints anticipates a greater resurrection, a greater resurrection that is Jesus' resurrection on Easter Sunday morning. It should be anticlimactic for the careful reader of Matthew's gospel. You get to the end of the story and the protagonist dies and everybody seems to be okay with that. But Matthew tells us that's not the end of the story. The faith profession of the guard actually anticipates gospel mission to the end of the earth. Matthew's portrait emphasizes both the person 
and the work of Jesus simultaneously. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus is referred to repeatedly as the Son of Man and as the Son of God, but it is notable that Jesus is referred only referred to only as the Son of God in the conclusion of Matthew's gospel in chapters 26, 27, and 28. If we're reading Matthew's gospel carefully, we'll see that Matthew is actually, he set the stage for us for the public vindication of Jesus in 28. He has set the stage for the public vindication of Jesus before his enemies. He teaches us that Jesus is not dead. He rose just as he said that he would. Matthew 28, verse 6. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said, come and see the place where he lay. This helps us see something that only careful readers are going to observe. That for Matthew, the two resurrection texts... 27, 51 through 54, and 28, 1 through 10, must be fused and read together to understand the theological significance of Matthew 27, 51 through 54. So what I want us to do is I want us to see how Matthew has paralleled these two texts. Take your Bible. Hopefully you have 27 and 28 side by side in this moment. Look at 27, 45. And from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. Now, you can keep your finger there and go to chapter 28, verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, darkness, light. Look at 2751. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook. There was an earthquake. Now, turn to chapter 28, verse 2. And behold, there was a great earthquake. Chapter 27, verse 52. The tombs also were opened. Chapter 28, verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. 27, verse 52. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Chapter 28, verse 6. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Chapter 27, verse 54. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake, chapter 28, verse 4, and for fear the guards trembled and became like dead men, chapter 27, verse 54, truly this was the Son of God, a positive profession of faith, chapter 28, verse 11 through 15, when they were going, behold, some of the guards went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. I've always wondered how much money was sufficient for that. And said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. A negative profession of faith. Chapter 27, verse 54, you have a Gentile. Chapter 28, verses 16 through 20, the gospel is now going to the nations, the ends of the earth. Careful readers of Matthew's gospel will begin to see that we can't do what we often normally do. We have our Good Friday sermon, and we have our Easter sermon. We have our Good Friday text, Matthew 27. We have our Easter Sunday text, Matthew 28. We will have to read the death-resurrection scene together, bring them in close proximity to understand what is taking place here. What is the theological significance 
of these events. His death means nothing if he is not raised from the dead. It does not matter if he is raised from the dead, if he did not accomplish the forgiveness of sins for God's people on the cross. For Matthew, the two events must go together. And if we don't make these observations by carefully reading, what we will do is we will separate the historicity of these events themselves from their placement in the gospel, and we will fail to see the theological significance. Matthew wasn't just writing his gospel and saying, okay, well, what comes next? Well, that's the next chronological thing. Or writing his gospel and saying, well, I can't really remember what was happening in the story, so I'll just include this thing about dead people getting out of the tombs. That'll wake up my readers. You know, he's writing with intentionality to help us see there's a theological purpose to the way that he has laid out the entirety of his story. It is a careful reading of Matthew 27, 51 through 54 that incorporates the entire scope of the death-resurrection narrative. That's 27.32 through 28.20. So that it is properly interpreted in light of the entire death-resurrection scene, rather than being singled out as a singular phenomenological occurrence or as an isolated event. Through the failure to observe Matthew's purposeful narrative strategy that is informing his literary parallelism in Matthew 27, 51 through 54, and 28, 1 through 10, as well as understanding that Matthew was very careful to intentionally place each text throughout the entirety of his gospel, we will fail to be able to interpret 27, 51 through 54 accurately. In fact, the interpretation will be obscured. It is a careful reading that helps us see how Matthew is using this text to function in the death-resurrection scene for three purposes, three theological motifs. One, Christology. Two, missiology. Three, eschatology. Christology. He is the Son of God. Therefore... His death makes the forgiveness of sins a reality, not an opportunity. It makes the forgiveness of sins an actuality. Jesus accomplished something on the cross. That's why he says so confidently, it is finished. Missiology. He is the Son of God. Therefore, his death on the cross has meaning for the nations. It's not just for the people around the cross. It's not just for the Jewish people. It's not just for first century people. It's for all people throughout time as we are waiting on the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is a missiological implication here. This is why we take the gospel to others because we think that it has relevance for their lives because of this event. Eschatology. He is the Son of God. Therefore, his death on the cross put an end to old covenant worship and instituted new covenant worship. This is best and most clearly seen in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. 
not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant." so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. And basically, I could read the entire book of Hebrews at this time. <laughs> Failure to observe the intentional structure of Matthew twenty-seven fifty-one through 54 as a strategic text that has been uniquely placed in the death-resurrection scene, obscures the interpretation of the text. It actually places interpretive stress on the text. It actually places a lot of interpretive stress on the raising of the sleeping saints. So when you're coming to your Bible, it's important for you to ask good questions, to be a careful reader. I keep repeating that throughout. You want to be good readers, granular readers of the texts. When you're asking questions like, who are these people and what did they wear and what were their names? You're asking the wrong questions because Matthew obviously does not care or he would have told you. If he thought that was significant for your salvation, he would have communicated that here in his gospel. We should be asking, who is this man and why is his death significant? Why does he die this way? Why is it that when he dies, all of these things happen? And why do all of these things happen together at one moment? The veil's torn, the earthquakes, the rocks split, the tombs are open, dead people get out of the tombs. Why does Matthew think that is significant for our understanding of the man on the cross? Our objective this evening is to discern the intended theological meaning. Matthew did not write anything in his gospel without a purpose. Matthew, from the very beginning, Matthew 1.1 1, 1, to the very end, 28.20, has told his story and crafted his story to solicit, to demand a response of his readers. He wants them to respond to the man who is called the Son of God. He has structured the entirety of this scene so that we might see that Jesus not only dies, but he is raised, and these signs communicate something very specific about him. So as we're looking at this, we have to see what is a viable interpretation of what is a very difficult and controversial text. How is this done? This is done by highlighting the significance of these three theological motifs. They come together here for Matthew. They're woven into the fabric of his gospel. From the very beginning to the end, all of those theological motifs are significant. We're asking ourselves, who is this man? This is the book of the genealogy or the genesis of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He is the one who will forgive his people from their sins. He is the one who is coming on the scene, proclaiming a new reality for them. That if they respond to this, they will inherit the kingdom of God. There is something that he is 
fulfilling. Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Matthew is highlighting the significance of these motifs. He wants us to see that Jesus' greater resurrection is what the religious leaders were actually afraid of. It proved that they were wrong. They're standing at the foot of the cross and everything that they say about Jesus is actually true about him, but they're mocking him as naysayers. His resurrection proves that they were wrong about him. He is the Son of God. His greater resurrection proves to his doubting disciples that he truly is alive and that he does indeed have authority over everything in heaven and on earth. His greater resurrection gives hope to all of his followers, all of you this evening, for they know, we know, that Jesus is the resurrected Son of God. He has conquered sin and death and hell and is now the Son of God who is God with us as a people who go about proclaiming a gospel of repentance and forgiveness of sins by believing in the name of the Son of God. Why? Why is Matthew so concerned to emphasize the fact that Jesus hangs on the cross and dies specifically as the Son of God in his gospel? The divine sonship of Jesus is directly associated with the forgiveness of sins. The Son of God took on flesh that he might be the redeemer of God's elect people. Matthew makes this very clear in three very obvious ways. First, Jesus' name has redemptive significance and salvific implications. Matthew 1.21, why do they call him Jesus? Because he will forgive his people from their sins. Second, though God, Jesus took on flesh with the intention of giving his life as a ransom for God's chosen people. Matthew 20, uh, 20, verse 28. Third, the sacrifice of the Son of God actualized the atonement. Matthew 26, verse 28. The scripture says to us, For this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is not a hypothetical reality in Matthew's gospel narrative. He gave his life for a specific purpose, for a specific group of people. In Matthew's gospel, the cross is the place where the Son of God sheds his blood to bring about this redemption. The crucifixion of the Son of God is the culmination of the sole purpose of his incarnation. This is what Calvin would say. The sole purpose of the incarnation is the redemption of God's chosen people. The only reason given in Scripture that the Son of God willed to take on our flesh and accepted this task was to appease the Father's wrath for us. The signs accompanying His death in Matthew 27, 51 through 54 emphasize this Christological portrait. They emphasize this portrait in the death-resurrection scene in Matthew's Gospel narrative. The signs are God the Father's response to God the Son's work of substitutionary atonement on the cross. The accusation leveled against Jesus by the religious leaders and the robbers and the passerbys, everything that is hurled against him in the last moments of his life, the rending of the temple uh, curtain from top to bottom, they all signify that something redemptive historical has taken place in this moment. The first Good Friday 
shows us that God accomplished redemption for his people. These particular aspects of Christology are brought to the fore in Matthew's death-resurrection conclusion by means of Jesus' obedience. Reflecting on the redemptive work of the Son of God, B.B. Warfield says this, We see the Son of God everywhere, offering to men his life for the salvation of their souls. And when at last the forces of evil gathered thick around him, walking alike without display and without dismay, the path of suffering appointed for him, and giving his life at Calvary, that through his death the world might live. Christians are sons of God because the Son of God has died for their sins. Why? Why has Matthew been so concerned to present Jesus as the Son of God on the cross. Verse 54, chapter 27. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe, with wonder, and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Friends, his death... His life-giving, ultimately salvific for all persons from all nations who would profess faith in His name. If you are here this evening, I don't even want to assume that you are a Christian. I want to extend the gospel to you. If you have not believed that His death has accomplished your redemption, and if you have not placed your faith in His name, if you have not placed your hope in the one who hung upon the tree and groaned upon the tree, you can do that now. And if you are a Christian here this evening, this is a reminder that you are a sinner and that the least evil in your life is enough to consign you to the deepest, darkest, worst corner of hell for all of eternity. You are a sinner and you will be judged for your sin, but the Bible tells us that while we were still Sinners, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. And Matthew has told us when that time was. Friends, he died for you. And if you hear the voice of the one who groaned upon the tree, you can turn and be healed. You must repent. You must be born again. And as his blood dripped from the cross onto the cursed ground that would now one day be redeemed by his cursed death... In the response of the, the, it is the response of the centurion that teaches us how all of us should respond this evening. Truly, this was the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to believe the words that we have read from the Bible this evening. This is not merely an academic exercise. Father, literally, in these moments as we study the Scripture, eternity hangs in the balance. And as we study these scriptures in preparation to bring this gospel to bear on the lives of others, eternity will hang in the balance. We pray that you would keep us faithful to your word. Amen.